the expression, life is but a game, is not a particularly recent idea. In fact, you can find it written in the early 1500s in the book Utopia by Thomas More, uh, who had characters playing a game like chess, he said, that was a battle between the virtues and the vices. Now, whether you were playing as virtue or vice was a matter of some debate within the game, but that was an interesting conversation surrounding it anyway. Life is but a game. Perhaps the earliest example of this is a game we know as shoots and ladders here in the United States, where good deeds would send you ahead and bad deeds would send you down the shoot or earlier snake uh, to an earlier part on the board. Sometimes all the way back to the first row. Now the game shoots and ladders uh, originally was found um, as snakes and ladders in the British uh, area, uh, British-controlled empire, uh, and they got it from the Indian people of India from a game they called Mokshapat, and that game was played over 2,000 years ago. Mokshapat was second century BC, and this was a way of teaching morality uh, in the Hindu culture that brought forward, and it was westernized and Christianized and then brought in forward. So this, this game was one of the earliest. However, perhaps the best example of life as a game is the game of life. And if you're like me, you probably have fond memories of playing the game as a child, moving your little plastic car around the road map. So 1960s, you had a car, you had to get from one place to another, everything was made out of plastic. That's the Watchword of the 60s, right? Plastics. It used a spinner rather than dice, so it was good for young and old to play together. You could spin that spinner, and everyone had the opportunity to do that. It turns out that it's only vaguely like its ancestor, a game designed in 1860 by a man named Milton Bradley called the Checkered Game of Life. I'll show you that in just a moment. This is the 1700s edition of the Indian game that became snakes and ladders eventually. You can see it's got much the same snakes moving through and the ladders that kind of move across the checkerboard. This, however, is the box cover to the checkered game of life. From 1860, this was released. Now, originally on a checkerboard pattern, the checkered game of life set itself up as a sort of repeatable morality play. You would move your pawn around the board, making decisions about where to move it. It wasn't fully luck-based, but you had some decision, some, ang uh, um, oh, what's the word? <laughs> agency, some agency in the game. Yes, thank you. Uh, you wouldn't just be spinning the little top that came with it for its number, not a die, but a top. Uh, you had agency about where you could move to some extent. And the goal of the game was to earn a hundred morality points, of which 50 were earned from reaching the happy old age of 50. I assume this had something to do with being 1860 and Milton Bradley being in his 20s at the time. But he also had the idea that you could reach happy old age a couple of times and win the game that way, too. So who knows? Maybe he had this idea of midlife crisis and come back later. All is, is possible. 
Now, games in the 19th century were seen as frivolous and not worthy of time, but the morality included in this one meant it could be played without rebuke from the more um, morality-minded amongst the population. The spinner even is a tip of the hat to that morality as dice were considered to be gambling objects or at least temptations into gambling. And if you had dice on you, well, everyone knows you'd just go out to the gambling halls from there and out into the alleyways and casting those dice everywhere you went. So no, it had to come with a top, something that was completely morally neutral at the time. Milton Bradley was surprised to find that his game caught on rapidly. His initial printing of 40,000 units sold out, and he made a few changes to further editions, including a pocket edition for soldiers in the Civil War, originally only available to Union soldiers, and later he found a distributor in the South and was able to sell to both Union and Confederate soldiers so that both sides had a pocket edition of the checkered game of life. There are a few interesting features in the morality exemplified in the checkered game of life. Landing on the space marked government contract sent you directly to wealth worth 10 morality points. The influence space would move you ahead to fat office, which was worth five morality points. Very interesting morality here. Gambling, though, would send you back to ruin. But speculation, which was somehow different from gambling, had the possibility of moving you ahead or back, depending on what you spun. That seems like gambling to me. I found that interesting in the rules. If you encountered poverty earlier in the game, it was no hardship. But later, if you landed on intemperance, meaning excessive drinking, it would send you back to poverty, and this was just the, the most difficult thing to come back through from, it seemed. Cupid would send you ahead to matrimony, which was worth no points. <laughs> but at least you were ahead. And if you landed on the same space as another player, you would send them to jail, which was different from prison where you'd lose a turn. Jail just was on the first row, so it was still a hardship, but you could move out immediately from it. The winner of the game, then, is the one who can most quickly secure a full life for themselves while avoiding the uh, evils of the world as well. Oddly, there was one square on the board that would remove a player from the game altogether. This square, called suicide, was often erased on the board games. Most of the existing boards that we have today have this square erased. People didn't want to see it, didn't want to see the image associated with it. This is despite Milton Bradley's attempt to use it as a moral lesson that one could not continue toward a happy old age after committing suicide. Yet there was one way to save someone forced onto the square within the rules of the game. If you voluntarily sacrificed yourself, you could instead send your opponent's pawn to jail and suffer the fate yourself. Now this, to me, has an interesting echo with 
Jesus' words from Mark's gospel. All, want, all who want to preserve their life will lose them. All who lose their lives because of me will save them. You see, those who remained playing the game would not be active in the real world. Only by leaving the game could you actually do the things you learned about in it. Setting yourself to work, avoiding crime, involving yourself in politics, and so on. In a strange way, then, the only way to truly win the checkered game of life was to stop playing it, to rebuke it in some ways. Now, in Mark's gospel, Peter rebukes Jesus for preaching about the necessity of the Messiah suffering and dying. While Mark doesn't record Peter's words, we can guess that Peter is not happy about Jesus going against his expectations of who the Messiah should be. After all, wasn't the Messiah supposed to come in glory and sweep the Roman occupiers away through military victory after military victory? And death? Jesus couldn't die. This was the Messiah, the anointed of God. This was Peter's friend and leader, and Peter had just named him Messiah before all the other disciples. That's the story right before this one. Yet, Jesus says, it is the lot of the human one to suffer and to die. And he rebukes Peter for challenging this saying, get behind me, Satan. Whether Jesus is calling Peter the devil or casting him as a generic adversary, like Pastor Ilana talked about last week, uh, this comes together as Jesus telling Peter that he's just not with it. He had this wonderful opportunity saying, you are the Messiah and you can't die. I'm not going to let you do this Jesus said, one part good, one part not so good. Let's focus on the good part here. Follow me. Don't try to lead me in the wrong path. Don't try to lead me away from the divine path, Jesus tells Peter. He goes on to tell everyone gathered to deny yourself, take up your cross, and keep following me. Keep following me. The Greek makes it clear that this is a present continuing tense. It isn't a one-time choice to be made, an early decision to head towards a political career or a teaching career. Jesus isn't saying that only martyrs and people who focus on others are able to follow him, but that if life presents you with a choice between yourself and others, you should always choose to help others even if it leads eventually to what this world sees as your own loss. Taking up your cross, then, means to follow Jesus even when it is risky to do so, even when it goes against the authorities, even when it goes against the cultural norm. As you may remember, for Romans, crucifixion was the punishment, the punishment for being treasonous for inciting rebellion against Roman authority. Those who took up their cross would be those rejecting Roman rule and following the way of Jesus instead. That way is about dedicating yourself to saving others 
a difficult but important calling for all of us Christians. Now, as it happens, Milton Bradley embraced the path of education as his life continued. He was an early champion of the cause of kindergarten education, seeing a need for education for the poor and for the very young. He later poured the money that he made from selling croquet and life. These were the two big money makers for him. He poured the money from this factory into making things that didn't make money, educational supplies, paints, flashcards, even inventing the one-armed paper cutter that I think has seen so much use in schools since then. He sold these things at a loss just so kids would have the opportunity to be well-educated and have greater opportunities through their life. In caring for children that he would never meet, in standing against a system that said that learning was always serious and only for the wealthy and well-to-do, Milton Bradley followed boldly in Christ's footsteps. A few years before his death, Bradley described his life as a success, qualifying it in this way. In using the word success, I do not wish to confine its meaning of that cheap interpretation which sees only the glitter of gold or the glamour of elusive fame. In my case, I cannot overstate and overestimate the feeling of satisfaction which has been with me all these years at the thought that I have done something, if only something prosaic in character, to place the kindergarten on its present solid foundation. You see, teaching the way of Jesus is important. Being a follower of Jesus isn't about assuring yourself of success, of punching the right ballot and being elected into the heavenly mansion of bliss. Instead, it's about recognizing that in caring for each other, we can experience a little bit of that heaven here on earth. Even when things are difficult, God stands by God's promises to us to love and care for us. As the psalmist puts it, God didn't despise or detest the suffering of the one who suffered. God didn't hide God's face from me. No, God listened when I cried out for help. Let all those who are suffering eat and be full. Let all those who seek the Lord praise God. That high praise, that recognition of God's attention toward the suffering and the lost, of God's constant care, comes at the end of Psalm 22. Now, through the course of this psalm, the psalmist moves from anger and rebuke of God to wholehearted praise and thanksgiving. This journey from separation to salvation to synergy with the divine is much the same course of each and every one of our lives. It is emblematic of the way that Christ teaches too, that speaking truth to power leads to true power telling off powerlessness. That the most selfish of act, selfless of actions leads to the greatest of rewards for both you and the world. 
that taking up your cross can cross lines in the sand, in the world, shining divine light into places that had never imagined what light could possibly look like? Is it any wonder, then, that the psalmist encourages an ever-widening circle to praise God's holy name? From the personal, God did not turn away from me when I called on God. To the congregational, I will declare you in the midst of the congregation. To the whole world, all the earth's powerful will worship God, and even to the eternal, all the generations to come will be told about Adonai, our Lord, our God. The psalmist realizes that praising God and honoring God's love means teaching God's love to generation after generation, to keep following God's way even through challenge, even when the only way forward looks like God has never been that way. Psalm 22 begins with a very famous line. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? And later on in Mark, Even Jesus cries out the same line, and possibly all of Psalm 22, starting with, My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? You see, in the time of the Gospel writers, the Psalms weren't yet numbered. Instead, they were referred to by their first line. It's possible, then, that Jesus' last words on the cross were a complete recitation of Psalm 22, not just that first line. And even if he didn't say the whole psalm, referencing it like this would have had a powerful impact also. I mean, picture it. Picture Jesus on the cross yelling out and finishing Psalm 22 with these lines. Indeed, all the earth's powerful will worship the Lord. All who are descending to the dust will kneel before God. My being also lives for God. Future descendants will serve God. Generations to come will be told about my Lord. They will proclaim God's righteousness to those not yet born, telling them what God has done. This, then, shows us the hope of Jesus' way. All who are descending to dust, that is, everyone who has ever walked the earth, will kneel before God. The blistering rebuke that Jesus gave to Peter, get behind me, Satan, is telling him to follow Jesus, that even in death, Jesus will lead Peter to life. And like Peter, you too are led into life. So, do not fear to stand up for what is right. Follow where Jesus is leading you. Stand up against violence and for the power of love. Trust in God and commit to a life in Christ's way, not because it is a one-time choice of salvation, but because God's free gift of salvation and grace encourages constant praise, constant thanksgiving, constant spreading of God's word to others, to all of God's beloved children on this earth. And so, May God hear you when you cry out, even in rebuking. 
May you hear the good news of resurrection when Christ rebukes you to follow him. May the Holy Spirit fill you to bursting with God's grace and love that you cannot help but turn from fear to joy, from rebuke to praise, from a struggle to preserve your own life to a focus on others. Amen.